Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, today is your old pal Ocho. Hello. I got stuck. <laughs> so, sitcoms, what do you make of them? Well, we overanalyzed them to the point of tedium, but people still seem to download. At least four people download this regularly. Now, have we, have we actually checked that on the stats? I don't want to know. Okay. We're hitting our request list and we're hitting it hard. Uh, well, yes, Something we are. we promised to do last series, would you call it? Last recording block. I think I'm still a little bit rusty. I think this, this protracted summer break has left me in need of a drop of WD-40. I need some big old rollicking ITV mid-70s sitcom to get me back into the swing of things. So what is our first request? Our first request is the squirrels. I get the feeling this might be a bit more your strong suit than mine, seeing as I don't own on the buses on DVD or anything like that. <laughs> you had to mention it, didn't you? So the squirrels, is that your sort of thing? It is and it isn't. I mean, it's a good old broad ITV sitcom, mid-1970s, excellent pedigree in Eric Chapel, the writer, and the cast will come to shortly. It's interesting for a comparison with Rising Damp, because this is around about the same time as Eric Chapel's also writing Rising Damp. And something I think we've faintly alluded to on previous casts, but I'm not sure if we've ever really bitten into it, is the nature of the different ITV companies. Rising Damp is Yorkshire, Squirrels is ATV. And YTV would later go on to do slightly broader, more frothy Eric Chappell shows. Only When I Laugh, one that I've been re-watching recently. Actually, one that isn't an Eric Chappell show, but is definitely a frothy Yorkshire sitcom, which we saw a couple of episodes of recently, Farrington of the FO. <laughs> when are we doing that in the club? We'd have to get some other people in for support. <laughs> I, you, I didn't, I, I didn't realise you meant for support. I thought you just meant we we'll have to get some other people in to do that. We won't be here. <laughs> it's stunt doubles. Before we get on to the squirrels in depth, I want to make a comment about 21st century viewing habits in relation to shows from, say, 1974. We're just talking there about Sky Plus and stuff and what have you. We watched these episodes two at a time over a period of X number of days. Now, that doesn't quite count as binge viewing, but even then, I, I think that there is an element where you're supposed to be watching this as a half an hour program per week. Yeah, it's why I'm going to go a bit easier than my initial reaction. I had problems with this, but these problems were entirely down to the fact that I was just churning it in a few days. I was watching it in entirely the wrong fashion. You can't really overstate it, can you? I mean, just the facilities to watch it like that just didn't exist at that time. So even if you had one of those fancy new video recorders, you probably had tapes that lasted an hour and cost damn near 20 quid each. So you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't save up an entire series of a sitcom and then sit and watch it all in one night. I mean, who the hell did that? I don't even remember particularly doing that with like VHS tapes. Or this, is, this seems to be a relatively new thing. I think it's because it's so easy to do it with PVRs and Netflix and so on. Because it's always there and even sometimes it's serving up the next one for you. You just finish watching one that says, do you want to see the next one? And, yeah, you're tempted. So I'm not generally like that myself. I like watching things a bit at a time. I still buy comics one month at a time. I'm not one of those people who, what they call, wait for the trade. No, I like the serial nature of things. But The Squirrels, is, is it's a nice one for us to pick because it's, what again, real trouble if I use the word platonic ideal. I think that's a much abused term. What, what, what's the term I'm looking for that kind of means platonic ideal? but sounds a little less late review, does that still exist? Uh, late review, actually, it was only recently just cancelled within the last oh, year God. or so. So, no, you're okay. It's still topical-ish reference. No, I'm just glad it's gone. <laughs> well, no, but they, they, they did the classic BBC, uh, we're going to move it to a new slot where it will continue to evolve and so on, and then after six months, it's like, yeah, nobody's watching this anymore. Get rid of it. Just that idea of, right, this is an ITV sitcom from the 70s set in an office... And this is just the perfect kind of vanilla example. If you said, write me a spoof of a 70s ITV sitcom, you'd come out with something that looked and acted a lot like the squirrels. Yes, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and I'm not saying that as, oh, it's terribly dated. No, this is a really nice thing to look at because where it works, it works because of the nature of television that time. Where it doesn't, it's because of how it was then. This is a good choice. 
Okay, well, let me put this forward as a theory, and we're in danger of becoming the modern review, but stick with it. So, if you are working in an office, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, you might be attracted by a sitcom about office politics in the evening. At the same time, you also don't really want it to be dealing with things which are heavy and, and which are very detailed and what have you, because that's just serving to remind you of all you've just been doing for the previous eight hours. So it fills a perfect niche where it's recognisable, so people understand what the, the situation is and they can get the setup where you've got like the different layers of management and so on. And you can see why Ken Jones' colleagues react to him when he suddenly has to smarm up to Bernard Hepton and what have you. You understand that, you know where they're coming from. But at the same time, it's nice and it's light and it's undemanding and it's perfect to unwind to. So yeah, it's right in the middle of where it's supposed to be. Do you want to talk us through the concept and the people? So our principal players are Bernard Hepton and Ken Jones. And alongside them, Patsy Rollins is Susan, Rex's wife, Rex's Ken Jones. Yeah, let's go through some character names. Ken Jones plays Rex Mason who, upon discovering an alien meteorite, also known as the Orb of Ra, is given superpowers and becomes Metamorpho, the Element Man. Whoa, hang on a second. Are you reviewing Kinvig by accident? Sorry, Rex Mason. It's also the name of Metamorpho, the Element Man, created by Bob Haney and Ramona Freden. A little bit of comic book trivia, and I can't resist it, and I can't help thinking, because, I mean, Metamorpho's bald, like Ken Jones. It'd be a very different show if... Ken Jones could just turn himself into helium gas whenever he felt like it. (laughs) Okay, so you've got Ken Jones as Rex. Is he actually senior to the other two people he works with? Far as I understand it, yes, because we've seen many a time we've seen Mr. Fletcher, Bernard Hepton, say... We are at the disadvantage that some of the first series episodes are missing. Well, no, the point is that when Mr. Fletcher leaves the office for whatever reason, he nominally leaves Rex in charge. Well, there's a slight element of as the plot requires, though, isn't there? Uh, yeah, a little bit. There's one show where there's this whole matter of what does each one of them earn. Now, if their job descriptions were pretty clear, why would Harry be desperate to see Rex's pay packet to find out? It, it's almost a question of do you earn more than I do, to which the answer would be, well, yes, I'm assistant sub-manager. This is a thing you see about the old office politics, is that wages can vary rather dramatically, according to, for example, the management of the day and whether there's been like any kind of pay freeze in the interim and what have you. So it's not necessarily as clear-cut as the latter is this, therefore... This is the ignorance of life of freelancing has brought me. Well, no, I'm just recalling some occasions in corporate work where there's been sort of rumours floating around about how much certain people earn. And sometimes, you know, like they'll have a recruitment drive. And so the starting salary for the people at that time might then have been a little bit higher than people who came in later on, for example. So the personalities involved. Rex is senior in this office. I mean, physically in this office, not in this workplace, because next door they have Mr. Fletcher, who is the boss. Then we have Harry is... He's a bit of a difficult one for me to pin down. He fancies himself as a bit of a Jack the Lad figure. Are we to take it that he has in his time been kind of cool? Or is he having a midlife crisis? I think it's I think it's more the latter, yeah. I think it's closer to him wanting to sort of cling on to the last elements of youth that he has going for him. But I don't really get the impression that he was some hellraiser in his youth. I don't think so, no. I think he needs a bad rug to really sell the idea. Yes, yeah, yeah. And we were actually speculating as we watched about other people who could have fulfilled that role. Well and wait there, don't spoil it because that role had been filled in the then future. Burke, played by Ellis Jones. Mummy's... Bo- well, do we actually find out anything about his home life? Well, he does... say In that one about the pay packet, he does say that his mother always checks his pay packet. Ah, okay. But he's not Timothy Lumsden. I think generally he's just a bit of a coward and a wuss, and he's going to be the first one to panic in a situation. And then we have our stock sexy secretary, Carol, played by Karen McCarthy. And not forgetting Patsy Rollins. This is another one where I'm not entirely sure she kind of shifts about a bit. Some episodes I think she's just supposed to be every woman housewife, and sometimes I think she's supposed to be a bit of an old softy, maybe cramping Rex's style a bit. I'm thinking of particularly the first episode we watched, 
that she's perhaps got a slightly lovey-dovey approach. And sometimes I think that she's meant to be a bit of a dragon. There's not really a situation where I could say, well, Susan wouldn't do that. Or, well, Susan would definitely do that. But this is the problem of watching them one after the other. What is Susan supposed to do? Whatever's a good gag. That's fine. We said this a bit last time on ever-decreasing circles about, you know, why, why be Terry and June when you can be ever-decreasing circles. And I was worried it came out like a put-down of Terry and June. So let's talk about froth for a bit. I think there's a lot of self-consciousness in television now. In everything, really. Guys like us and the generation before us, when we were young and our hearts were an open book, the idea of edginess, the idea of sneering at anything that's too cosy and mainstream, I think then kind of became the idea of sneering at anything that was cosy and mainstream enough until you're treating stuff that is just there to make people happy. Sincerely. You and I, we've studied some of the people, some of the personalities behind these shows. We know the names of executives at television companies, and we know that they cared about what they were doing, even when they're commissioning stuff that is fairly disposable. It is not prole feed to them. They really think that they're doing something that is worth doing. Okay, I don't want to get too off topic here, but I want to cite an example of something which isn't sitcom related. We just, today, as we're recording this, we've just read in the newspapers about the BBC planning to bring back the Generation Game, this time with Miranda Hart as host. Given what you were just saying there about how things which seem to be too cosy seemingly have to be mocked and put down these days. When I read that piece earlier on and it said about how the show was going to be reimagined, I don't know if this is as a nation or just if it's something specific to television or whatever it is, have we actually forgotten how to have fun for its own sake? But there's this whole thing of worrying that somebody's going to come along and go, oh, that's rubbish. You're rubbish. So then there has to be this built-in, oh, I'm just, you know, I don't really care. So you now get stuff that is supposed to be cosy and disposable but has this weird sort of, it's, it's wrapped in cling film. Oh, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm being silly here. Don't take anything I'm doing as, as being something that I care about. So it's, it's almost, oh, you know, I could, I could be edgy any moment. Obviously, this is just me taking a day off from being really edgy. Can we put our finger on exactly when and why this started? And, and I think probably most importantly of all, why it's been allowed to take hold and linger. Because you'd think that something like that would be a passing fad, but it does seem to be something which is permeated throughout television in general. You can look at earlier examples of like youth television, which is, oh, we're going to get you Terry and June. And at least there's an earnestness about it. And then it just becomes, Terry and June, anybody? <laughs> and the people who made those programs are now making our middle-aged programs. And I've depressed myself! The thing is that there is an argument for saying that things like, for example, Teddy and June, because that's the example we've given, have aged better than a lot of the shows which were aiming at shows like Teddy and June, if that makes any sense. I think that if you were put on something like The Good Life, for example, well, then I'm thinking that has... When the, the young ones took a pot shot at The Good Life, there was a certain fire to it. You might be able to say, well, I think you're missing the point a bit, or if you actually look, it's a bit more political than you'd think. But it's fine. There's a little bit of vinegar in their criticism. I'm trying now to think of a bad parody of that kind. There just, there just came a point when a parody of a sitcom became a very kind of superficial thing. Let's talk about the squirrels. Because that's the thing about the squirrels. It is what it is, and it's fairly comfortable with itself. I think that Ken Jones is an unsung hero of yes. sitcom. Yes. I'd spoken before about We haven't done the Whackers yet, but do you remember no, the whole haven't. situation where we're going to watch the Whackers because it's so rubbish? And we watched it, and it's like, there is something here. They definitely could have done with being a second series of the Whackers. It wasn't that we thought it was going to be rubbish as in, oh, this is going to be a terrible show. It, it was like, Oh, come on, we were hoping for Nelly levels of... No, 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 but that, no, that is what I mean. By terrible show, I mean just something that leaves you bored and something which you're, just, you're not interested to go beyond sort of 10 minutes into it. Whereas, no, we thought this was going to be just the most outrageous thing since Bernie Clifton appeared on Blankety Blank. But it wasn't quite like that. It was... You know, okay, it had a bit of cruelty in it and what have you, but by and large, it, was it, was, all, it, was, it had a little bit of something to say about life. No, good show. 
And Ken Jones was part of that. I think he was very successful in selling the character. For whatever reason, I don't quite know why it is. And of course, nobody knows, because if you knew, you'd bought it. I tell you what I have to get onto YouTube. Find that Mr. Majika where Ken Jones plays Father Christmas. Because generally, he plays horrible, (laughs) selfish, messed up characters. I think it's just something to do with the shape of his eye bags. They give him a certain disreputable quality. Rex Mason is actually not too bad of a guy. Uh, it's Ken Jones as an everyman. And again, he stepped out of his usual typecasting. I couldn't be on his side this time. Do you remember your reaction the first time you found out that Ken Jones had presented continuity for children's ITV? <laughs> Don't tell anyone to show you this, kiddies. <laughs> Takes a drag off a dog end. <laughs> <laughs> But I was going to say that you don't know why it is that certain performers excel and certain performers perhaps have the spotlight at just the right time that propels them into sort of A-list category. But for whatever reason, I think Ken Jones, I think, is somebody who could very well have carried his own vehicle for years and years and so on. But for whatever reason, just generally speaking, he found himself in supporting roles. By and large, apart from this little period in the mid-1970s where he's leading the cast in both The Squirrels and The Whackers. And whilst we were watching The Squirrels, I said to you, okay, quick bit of recasting. Ken Jones as Rigsby. It's not unthinkable, is it? No, he'd be a bit seedier. He'd lose Rossiter's manic quality. But I don't think you'd find yourself thinking, oh, not quite right for this. No, he would fit right in with those surroundings. Whereas, for example... If Rigsby had been played by Arnold Ridley, with Arnold <laughs> Ridley playing it exactly like Private Godfrey, then you think there's something there's something not quite right here. Why are the, the other tenants reacting to him in such a mean-spirited way? He means no one any harm. So should we go through these episode by episode? We only watched what survives of Series 1 and then Series 2. Being fully fair, we got the feeling there probably wasn't going to be much more to Series 3. Oh, we watched one episode of Series 3, didn't we? We didn't think that we needed to get right to the end of Series 3. Don't think there were going to be any swerves. Is Bernard Hepton principally someone associated with drama? Because Definitely. I have no recollection. I can't make my mind up about Bernard Hepton in this. I know that he was also in Sadie It's Cold Outside by, I believe it was Jack Rosenthal. Cold It's. Speaking of Jack Rosenthal, he's in an episode of Village Hall, if I think that's what it's called, which is on the border between comedy and drama like a lot of Jack Rosenthal stuff. I principally think of him being as in uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People. Between those two series, they suddenly remember that the character he's playing is supposed to be from Eastern Europe. He might as well be a different character in series two. But generally, yes, he's he's somebody I think of as a grand dramatic actor. And there's something strange about him in The Squirrels, and I can't decide if it's slightly wrong or slightly brilliant because there's something of the night about him there's always that feeling he's gonna whoever he's talking to is just gonna go for their neck he's got this (laughs) slightly canine smile (laughs) and the glasses you can't really see his eyes properly now you said to me what about brian wilde yes i think i know where i was with mr fletcher as played by brian wilde bumbling ridiculously thinks that he's a ladies man Whereas I can't quite read Bernard Hepton, but it does make him a bit less of a stock character. And he's from Bradford, so he's fantastic anyway. <laughs> this show would be so much better if the sexy secretary was played by Mary Tam. <laughs> now, what about our other two office employees? So you've got Harry, and like I say, Harry needs a bad rug. You know, if you're that committed to going to the discotheque and trying to cling on to what's left of your youth, I think you'd do something about your head. I think you're right there. And you've just reminded me of somebody who I encountered uh, in my working life who actually was a, a peace user. And the strange thing about it was that he wasn't actually in any way uncomfortable about discussing it. Oh, he was definitely. like really You know what? If I go bald, I'm getting a piece. He was really enthusiastic about it. And on one occasion... He ran out into the street and grabbed some fella by the arm who didn't know and said, excuse me, can you tell me where you got your piece from? Burke, Ellis Jones, is the wuss. With Burke, I don't get the same feeling that necessarily his mother's oppressing him. He's chosen that. 
I think his mother would be fine if he moved as, as from what I know, from what I've seen in the episodes. His characteristic is Mummy's Boys is just an easier way of describing the stock character, but really it's just that he's panicky, he's naive, and he knows it. He's probably no more out of his depth than the others in the office, but he knows what he can and can't do. And that's why it makes him easy fodder to be picked on by Harry. It's interesting, do we see much of his interaction with Carol? Because it'd be interesting that he should really kind of bring out a certain protective instinct. I think there's a bit of a missed opportunity there. Carol does seem to be very flirtatious. And actually, she seems to be quite flirtatious with Harry yeah. at a certain point. To me, it would be very natural for her to come in to find Harry picking on him. And, on, you know, leave him alone, t- you know, taking his side. And then that's maybe that slight suggestion that some of Burke's behaviour is a bit of a wounded fawn manoeuvre. And yet, so every, every once in a while, he can get sort of caught up in events. And like that episode we talked about with the, the pay slips... And he's sort of dispatched to be the spokesman. You know, after a little while, he's sort of losing his inhibitions. But I suspect that as soon as things got a bit heated, then he would be backed into a corner again. Who is Ellis Jones? Why, when I saw this, did I go, oh, Ellis Jones, yeah. This is the first time I've seen him in anything. What's wrong with me? Are you going to be able to tell, run me off a list of all the really, really famous things he's been in? I'll have a go if you'd like. No, from memory. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm doing it from memory. Right. Okay, here we go then. Uh, right. Well, from memory, he has recently appeared in something called The Scampi Trail. <laughs> but before that, Sorry. he was last seen... From memory. Yeah. Uh, and he was in uh, Cadfile in 1996. Oh, yeah. You and remember that one, do you? In... Remember that well? What happened and in apparently there? He... Well, well uh, no, I know. Who was playing you in that one? Seeing as you remember it so well with this fine memory of yours. Come on, you know so much about this CAD file. No, but he was also in an episode of Cannonball's Playhouse in 1991. Now, how on earth have we not encountered Cannonball's Playhouse yet? I get the feeling that Ellis Jones is legit, because you are not able to reel off from memory. You're reading that off the internet. Do you have any evidence for this outrageous accusation? Yeah, I know you. Shall we go through the episodes one by one? Or the bits that we remember? Well, strangely enough, we started with a rather atypical episode, didn't we? Yeah, let's get out the office. And this brings us to the indistinct nature of sitcom infidelity, which I think we really need to talk about, almost maybe in its own show. We did sort of talk about this a little bit on Ever-Decreasing Circles, that we need to do a special about sex and the sitcom. Different shows have different built-in boundaries, and I suspect that it's still going to be considered a heel move if somebody has actually cheated on their partner. So they're not going to come in boasting about what they got up to the weekend on a Monday morning without there being at least some sort of ambiguity about it. And if there isn't any ambiguity, there's going to be repercussions, undoubtedly. Let's face it, we know what Harry is out to do cheat on his wife now what okay well hang on a second what about what about what's his name oh god what's his name malcolm malcolm and terry and june yeah that was i I mean i remember seeing one years ago and being surprised about how he's like he just sort of comes in and sits on terry's desk and says you know pick up a bit of stuff i can't remember the (laughs) plot (laughs) almost like you know christmas party are we gonna pick up a nice bit of crackling or whatever terms they used in olden times. What was more shocking was Teddy's reaction. Yeah, all right then. And then off they went. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of terms you don't hear anymore, just the other day for a forthcoming sitcom club, we debated the merits of the word rumpo and how you never hear this (laughs) anymore. Because just the other day, they were talking about all the new words that had gone into the Oxford English Dictionary. And I would like to check whether Rumpo has ever been in the OED, and if it has, at what point it was dropped. Because it's certainly not one you hear of nowadays, is it? Do we actually think that Harry has, you know, or is he just a bullshitter? I know this is kind of breaking the rules. And I know we should never really say this at Sitcom Club, but Harry doesn't exist. And I don't mean that as a way of putting you on the spot. Or sneering at you, go, oh, this is taking it a bit too seriously because I am the king of taking it too seriously. I think there's a kind of a limbo 
where nobody ever really thinks about that. The reason I say this is I don't think there's really a way of looking at the evidence. There's no way of looking at episodes and performance choices that will lead us to any sort of fun conclusion. We could talk about would Paul really run off with Anne if the opportunity presented itself? And there's lots of little bits and fairly definitive bits, but there's lots of little bits in ever-decreasing circles, lots of lines and ways that lines are delivered and maybe even just looks in Peter Egan's eye that we can play with to say yes, no. With a stock character like Harry, you can't really say. Well, okay, let me rephrase, and we've got to be careful about that, you know, he doesn't exist because that actually is a nuclear option. If that's said on this show three times, then the sitcom club actually <laughs> automatically ceases to exist. But, okay, let me phrase it a different way. Do you think that Harry would be unfaithful, or is he simply trying to prove that his best years are not behind him? and actually would foul himself if the opportunity legitimately presented itself. <laughs> what? I don't, mean, I don't mean he's got some sort of medical complaint. I just mean that, you know, would he be feared if, you know, let, let's say, for example, Carol comes on to him and says, come on then, big boy, links on the table. Let's have a look at it. I, I suspect that he probably wouldn't go through with it. I think that he'd probably say, no, no, no. I think my, he'd my have to be satisfied. very, very drunk. Yes. I don't think he'd do it in cold blood. Whereas the thing is that with Rex, in that first episode where they're all uh, they're jolly at the hotel and what have you, with Rex, there's never any suggestion that he would do that. He, long before Susan turns up at the hotel, long before she's even well, there. That's a, the reason he'd never cheat is because... Well, the thing also is, though, the way Susan behaves when she gets to the hotel, it's another sitcom standby, is frustrated, undersexed husband. Rex isn't. I think there's a suggestion that Susan enjoys her marriage on that side of things. Hang on a minute. Oh, I've had a thought. What if Susan and Harry are, you know, eh? Well, Susan does not like Mrs. Harry. <laughs> I don't think she likes Harry either. I'm not sure. I, I get the feeling that she probably doesn't like Rex's workmates. And there's there's already that tension and rivalry between the two She wouldn't have any problem people, with Burke, so. would she? Because nobody could have any problem with Burke. I mean, actually, actually, that's the thing. Later on, Burke actually volunteers to, to sort of be their guard dog, effectively. So the, this whole episode is based on the idea that when businessmen, they're out of town, so they go to a hotel and they cheat on their wives. How many series of Mad Men have they been? It's, that's, that's what... You know what? Mad Men is actually the American version of the squirrels. <laughs> I'm not necessarily questioning whether Mad Men has really done its research. And I'm not saying necessarily that it's historically inaccurate. There can't have been that much sex in the 60s. The entire population would have just keeled over with gonorrhea about 1972. <laughs> but there's definitely a slightly different <laughs> sexual moray. Didn't sex come in with the new ITA franchises in 68? Was wasn't that any. it? Yeah, there wasn't any before that. And then it ended in January the 1st, 1993. <laughs> Eric Chappell worked at the East Midlands Electricity Board. He was a travelling auditor. So he obviously knew his office life. But I'm curious, to what extent is this a reflection of actual behaviour or a stock situation if it's based on observation or based on jokes? That seaside postcard way of doing things. A little bit like, obviously the joke, you know, when it, whenever a businessman, whenever a travelling auditor goes travel somewhere to audit, he'd like to chase the girls all around town. But he doesn't, but there's nothing funny about him not chasing the girls all around town, or even trying. There's nothing funny about him sit, spreading out on his candlewick bedspread and reading the latest Len Dayton. <laughs> which is what he would really do. A brave move for a sitcom, and I'd like to see that, that happen sometime. Would, would you not like to maybe see the... popping down to the bar for a prawn cocktail and a snowball? I'm trying to be as seventies as possible. Maybe with a cherry with one of those plastic swords. Oh yeah. So would you not like to see an episode of Not Going Out where Lee Mac goes goes away on business and is just in his hotel room and he's trying to get the Nespresso machine to work and is disappointed with the fact that there's only free view in his hotel TV and then just settles down with his Kindle. That's, that's it, really. Do you think? That rather than the rise of feminism in the 70s and 80s, 
and changing sensitivities, that really the whole idea of men routinely, habitually, cheating on their wives and not feeling bad about it has become less of a staple because hotel rooms have televisions in them. Well, it has to be considered, doesn't it? And do you think that as television gets more and more banal, that whole thing's going to come back? It is a possibility. See, a man comes home to his wife and says, I've been unfaithful to you. said, when? said, that Saturday night. She went, oh, you mean when they had Miranda Hart's Generation game? I <laughs> quick deviation. British That's what they're all hoping for, yes, a quick deviation. I know, no, I didn't I didn't mean that. British wrestler of yesteryear, Jackie Palo. Mr. TV? Yes, that's right. When he was surprised by Eamon Andrews with the Big Red Book, a few weeks later he is wrestling on that particular evening and he stops his car at the nearest B&B that he finds and rushes in and says, where is your TV room? Because this is your life's coming on and I'm on it. And just barges in and whatever the old ladies of the the P and B were watching, bollocks to that. <laughs> Off it went <laughs> so that Jackie Palo could watch himself. <laughs> this is your life. But okay, it's I mean, in the job description. I am Mister TV. I really TV. don't like this idea of communal TV viewing. I, I very very occasionally, like my first year at uni, halls of residence, we didn't have individual TVs in the rooms, so you'd have maybe a TV in the kitchen, or there was actually like a one large room in the the main sort of reception area with a TV, and you'd always get that business where you, you, oh great the place is empty, and you know I could put on whatever I want, and you put something on, and within two minutes some buggers come through the door, and then you hear those words that you dread: what are we watching? What are we watching? As if, you know, two minutes ago there was no collective in this room, but now suddenly what's on the TV is a matter for debate and public discussion. I think maybe communal television watching is a good thing because I think it will help people relate to one another more, but it needs to be done on an appointment basis. It should be compulsory. There should be a certain amount of flexibility. But does that mean you have to actually be in the same room as all people watching it? Yes. You learn things about... Various mindsets. Like, I can't remember what year it was, but it may well have been into the 1990s, sitting in a TV lounge in the Lake District. It was in a hotel. <laughs> People in the Lake District do have their own televisions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the news at 10 with Trevor McDonald and hearing an old person going, I still can't get used to a coloured man reading the news. <laughs> I had no ideas that the. <laughs> People still said that, so it was educational. <laughs> Mind you, in Border, that was the continuity announcer. <laughs> that damn open mic. No, I, I like the fact that Rex, even long before his wife turns up at the hotel, he's rebuffing... It's actually a great reversal. Stock character, stock situations. Harry is having the bog-standard stock situation of... He's away from the office, so he's trying to get his end away. But it's nice that the main plot is Rex not doing that. So naturally, he'll be suspected of it. Fate tries to make everything look like he's doing what he's not doing. Should I share with the listeners what I thought was going to happen in this episode? Oh yes, definitely, because I've forgotten myself. I'll come back to you. There is one moment early on in the episode where Rex is in his room and there's Harry sort of trying to encourage him to go out on the lash with him. And at one point, they both sat in the bed and Harry's saying, hey, you know, hey, you know, two blokes on the road out in the town, eh? And just for one fleeting moment, I thought that Harry was actually going to jump Rex on the bed. Now, I don't think anything was going to happen, but I had in my mind this particular Cheek and Chong routine about two dogs by a lamppost. And I thought, Harry's getting slightly out of control here. His excitement may get the better of him. Mr. Fletcher also has a subplot, because for some reason their boss goes with them too. It's been a while since I watched this. Can you remind me exactly what happened? Because I know there's a part of it that I don't think quite works. I thought something was supposed to happen that didn't. Well, Mr. Fletcher, like Harry, has also sort of got ideas about, you know, and they all seem to mistake this one lady who's in the hotel, and she's actually married to 
the chap that they're all there to meet, the sort of the big boss man that they're all there to meet the next day. That kind of gets fudged because the chap they're there to meet, played by Harold Innocent, swans in and starts talking to this woman in what struck me as very arch and vague terms. And I must confess, I thought that she was a working lady and that Harold Innocent was her protector. The sense that they were married was there and not there. Because for the ending that they're working up to, which is, ha-ha, Harry and Burke have ended up inviting the wife of the man that they're supposed to meet and impress. Oh, Harry and Burke and Mr. Fletcher. But we've already seen the connection between these two characters, but I guess in trying to hold back the big reveal, they've revealed too much and not enough, and so the big reveal's a bit botched. And how long does Rex leave his wife locked in the bathroom? A long time. Because as a result of trying to have an assignation with this woman, and for some reason using... Why do they use Rex's room? Is it, is it Harry that starts it by giving another room number to make sure that it isn't his own room? And then it sort of snowballs from there, doesn't it? Because I think that because he gives a room number first, then I think it's like passed on amongst everybody in the bar. Oh, did you hear that fellow just said that the, the, the party's in this room? Do we need to go through this plot point by plot point? Sometimes we'd like to do it because it gives us lots of things to talk about. We can, but, but we've only actually covered the so very we first use, episode. we use one of my favourite phrases, which is, for good and sufficient reasons. Yes. Rex locks his wife in the bathroom. <laughs> And nobody at this party <laughs> needs the loo. Otherwise, they'd open up and say, there's a woman in here in a nightie. And she, for some reason, has the willpower to not open the door. Has Rex said, so, look, so, right, this room's en suite, yeah, yeah. And the bathroom door locks from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> Something that only ever happens in sitcoms. Doors with locks on the outside. No, I saw one in Belgium once. Really? Mm. Uh, why? Why did that happen? You'd have to ask a Belgian. Is that the name of a show? Their swimming pools are filled with salt water as well. Like in that Julian Lennon song. I know my criticism to come across like I didn't enjoy this because a lot of people jammed in a hotel room. It is a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> Turn it to Tom Fun. <laughs> Even though the Marx Brothers took it to a certain height, I, th I still think it's worth doing in comedy to just have a lot of people pile into a hotel room. Do you not think that at some point in the evening, Harry would have wanted to go into the bathroom to snort a line? Because I'm sure that somebody would have sold him what he thought. It's the was. 70s. I know it existed, but it just wasn't the thing, was it? The 70s. Yeah, but I, I suspect that he would have fallen. Not the early to mid 70s. He would have fallen for somebody who sold him like a little bag of bicarbonate of soda or something like that, and he's paid top dollar for it, and then actually thinks it's having an effect. Is this autobiographical? If <laughs> <laughs> I ever catch that bugger again. He told me he was a licensed chemist. But anyway, the, the next episode that we saw, what was, the, what was the next episode that we saw? That was also from series one. That was the one where I think a penny dropped. That was the one with Philip Maddock. The main thing I took away about that, again, for good and sufficient reasons, they end up at the boss's house trying to pretend it's Rex's house. And the things that Harry takes is a sign that this is a really sophisticated, rich man's paradise that Mr. Fletcher is living in, is that he has a picture of the green-faced lady Mooncat, you know about that. Oh, yes. Okay. I was going to say that perhaps he would also have a poster of the tennis player. He's the one. Maybe in his own room, but I don't think where, anywhere the other guys were. That's not a sign of a sophisticate. That's a sign of a libertine. <laughs> if you walk into the hall, this suburban semi-detached wonder palace, the first thing you see, a tennis player scratching her buttock. No. <laughs> No, green-faced lady. Chinese girl by Vladimir Trechikov, 1952, for those of you who want to know more about the green-faced lady. And the other sign of how Mr. Fletcher is a member of the 1% is that he uh, he makes his own soda. <laughs> <laughs> no, that has to be euphemism. I, yeah, no, don't do that. I, I was trying to avoid that. I it. really hate when anything, you say something and somebody goes... It's, and that's, is that a euphemism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, he's making his own soda. Does really, he can't really avoid that trap. No. <laughs> he makes his own sandwiches, if you know what I mean. Maybe that happens in the, in the previous episode. Rex, can I, um, can I use you? Somebody's in there, and they're making their own soda. Nobody knows what he means, but nobody wants to admit. 
So green faced lady in a soda stream. That's what you needed to be. An urban sophisticate in the seventies. It's That means that you've made that's, it. That's the it? kind of time I'd like to live in. Someone once told me that their idea of the height of not so much the height of sophistication, but just that you've made it, that you're sort of comfortable was shopping in John Lewis. Now I presume they meant shopping in John Lewis on a regular basis and not that you went into John Lewis in the January sales and bought the cheapest item that they had. And that this now means that you're And then kept the bag for the rest of the year. (laughs) When you go to Aldi. But yeah, I mean, is is John Lewis the height of middle class sophistication these days? I don't know. I'm sort of out of touch with all this. Not that I was ever in touch with all. But I don't think that if you wanted to impress people at a dinner party, which also I've never been to, these days, if you suddenly dropped, don't want to sound boastful here, but uh, we've uh, we've actually just got a soda stream, which just got it delivered last week. You bring it out, you put it in the middle of the table. Right then, <laughs> crack the knuckles. Now I think yours was the cherry aid. One cherry aid for Norman. There we go. <laughs> now, got a little iron brew going, anyone? <laughs> there would be at least one person in the room who just wouldn't have one of those things in the house because they think it was black magic. <laughs> anyway, cut to the chase. Let's just spoil the episode. Hilda. Hilda would think it was black magic. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I think Martin would think they're a bit commie. Yeah. Yeah. If he went to Paul's house, we're just ever decreasing circles club by this point. Everything is <laughs> going to come back to. Me. Oh, can't just go down to uh, to Tesco and buy lemonade like the rest of us. No, he has to make his own. Suppose he thinks that decent English bubbles are common. I, I bet he has the gas cylinders flown in from the EEC. <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to spoil this episode. What happens is old schoolmate of Rex's, played by Philip Maddock, comes in trying to impress Rex about how well he's doing. This involves Rex pretending to be more successful than he is, which means pretending that his boss's house is his house. Right at the end, after the hilarious consequences have settled, it's the... what's the name of the cereal? Sugar Balls! That's it. It's the Sugar Balls man. He's dressed as a big sugar ball. If you have a packet of sugar balls in the house, I'll give you five pounds. It's like, okay, here's, hang on a minute, pulls off his sugar ball head. It's Philip Maddock. He's not doing well for himself. He's the sugar ball man. And a light went off above my head. Hang on a minute, I've seen this before, and yet I'm watching this for the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have hats, hold on to them. Unless it's a fedora, in which case throw it away. The Squirrels was remade in the 90s. As Fiddlers 3. And that particular episode, it was not Philip Medic, it was Paul Darrow from TV's Blakes and his Seven. And would you, should, we, should we go through who plays what? Yes, so we've got Rex now being played by Peter Davis. The character names have changed, at least for the principal cast. I can't remember the name of the Philip Medic character, but he had exactly the same name when he was being played by Paul Darrow. Let's hold off on Harry. Just for one moment. So we've got Rex's character is Peter Davison, and young Burke is Tyler Butterworth, and who's the big boss man in this? Somebody else. He doesn't seem to be to be quite the same presence as Mr. Fletcher is in The Squirrels. We didn't watch much Fiddler's 3. I think maybe we watched one and a half. Paula Wilcox is Susan. However, it is the casting of Hardy that interests us most, because... Whilst we're watching... I don't want to take anything away from Alan David, but if your character is middle-aged, thinks he's still Jack the Lad, bit of an embarrassment, who else could it be? (laughs) Peter Blake, knocking that one out of the park. Knocking one out of the park. (laughs) Hey, he was the 90s, a little bit more bold. (laughs) And the secretary in Fiddler's Free, she's a bit more... I don't know, um... It's more of a stereotypical secretary, I suppose you would say. She's seduced by the idea of a swimming pool by Burke. It was an oddity. We, we, did we, we watched this straight after we watched The Squirrels, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Most watched of the it. dialogue was identical. I think they did change one scene a bit more to divide lines up between Peter Davison and Peter Blake. They did remove references to air raid shelters. 
Okay, but was it still a soda stream? That they, they... Uh, the green face lady and the soda stream have gone. Oh, okay. Shame. <laughs> the the swimming pool was the 90s equivalent of the 70s soda stream and a green face lady. <laughs> but if you're not meant to watch the squirrels as a sort of binge viewing box set, you're definitely not meant to watch Fiddler's Free immediately after having watched the same episode. But it's squirrels. fascinating. It's, it's oh, it an is, exercise. Yes. Yeah. And I'd like to think that BBC style on one occasion. Perhaps Carlton Select put out the squirrels immediately followed by Fiddler's Free and had to apologise later on in the evening. <laughs> There's a strange relationship between Susan and Mrs. Harry. They obviously like regularly hang out together, but they snipe at each other. There's all that keeping up with the Joneses. Who's going to be the first one to get a soda stream? But then Susan thinks nothing of arguing with her husband in front of this woman that she's doesn't particularly like and is trying to impress. That was weird. Yes. Is it fitting the sort of the situation rather than being a particular characteristic? Because you've also got that episode later on. There's a bit more sort of sisterhood in that episode where they're talking about Susan wanting driving lessons from Rex. And there's a bit more sort of encouragement between them. I know we sort of fall back sometimes when we say about introducing certain character traits just to fit the plot. There are a couple of occasions of that in series two, like for example when Mr. Fletcher suddenly becomes a gardening fanatic, despite never having mentioned it before. Now, not speaking of which, when do we mention... You had a nice turn of phrase for it about the action dialogue-free in the last 45 seconds of each episode. How on earth do you best describe that? Because it's basically that everything in terms of the, the farce has reached a crescendo. and So there's then, a bit of running around while the credits roll. Yes, but sometimes the activity can be really manic in a way that you couldn't possibly sustain. You used if- to get it a lot in Russ Abbott sketches. Spare acting. They'd have to play a little sting at the end of the sketch and have, have the audience applause before transitioning to the next sketch. And you'd, you'd have characters just like pulling faces just for something to do <laughs> while they waited for some Quantel effect to take them away. <laughs> now, if you were the director of such a show, would you not at least on one occasion be inclined just not to give them the cue to say, stand down? Just let them carry on and see how long they continue before eventually somebody looks round in desperation for a floor manager and says, we're not through yet. In a handful of episodes, particularly the ones that have got sort of more sort of farcical content, I'd like to be able to turn off the theme music and switch off the audience applause and just hear the dialogue, if there is any, from the actors there and then. Because suddenly everybody's sort of acting at 1.5 times speed. I think it's fair to say that by the time we'd walked away through series two, I think you can pretty much say that any episode will work as a standalone episode. There are no plot transitions or any kind of character development or anything like that, which is only going to throw you if you've missed the show for a couple of weeks. And any episode would stand on its own as a one-off episode. I think the episode... Well, a big tease I mentioned earlier, and we never really came back to it, was the company style thing. How much do you think this frothy, write-it-and-run style comes from it being an ATV production, who were a very nice, big, glossy, show-busy company? Well, I was just thinking, this is around about the same time as their two separate Silla Black sitcom series, and they are quite frothy and light-hearted and everybody's just having a gay old time and what have you and yeah i suspect that if this was a yorkshire show or a granada show probably be ever so slightly more leaning towards the up bit of grissier dialogue or or something along those lines because we know this is not the only thing eric chapel can do in fact this show has its origins in a bbc radio 4 play which apparently i've never heard it i don't know if i can get hold of a copy it's called poor glover that actually contains the explanation for why this show is called The Squirrels. Presumably something about hoarding nuts, the way these people hoard power or lust, you know, or maybe something else. Television's such a collaborative medium. There's so many people involved that I think it's easy to forget how one person in that setup doing their job too well, too badly, or just differently can change something. We talk a lot about Esmond and Larby. I watched one episode of Bowler, the spin-off, 
from Police uh, Fen Street Gang. That's it. This Fen Street Gang it spins off of, yeah? It was terrible. It was way over the top. It was not really like anything else I'd seen. And it's, it's still written by them. It wasn't just created by. But it was like some strange pantomime version of the whole thing is that he wants to be respectable. He wants to be classy, but he's a small-time East End crook. It was just silly. I'm just wondering if there hadn't been London Weekend who had, after an initial start of being BBC Three, well, I, do, I say initial start, when did On The Buses did not start that long after London Weekend started, did it? Well, I think On The Buses was one of the first attempts at sort of rescuing. The one that's always cited is, is of course, Placer, because that was the one that they said Rupert Murdoch picked up on when he was brought in to try and save the company. Uh, that he watched the early episodes and watched the viewer reaction to those and said immediately, give us a ton more of them. And I think basically sort of extended it from six episodes to 26, pretty much within a matter of his first few weeks on air. But yeah, um, On the Buzzies would have started 68 and so would have been one of Frank Muir's first. I'm just thinking, though, that like, like Bowler, if somehow the way the copyrights fell, the way... Things happen. Esmond and Lobby had somehow said, well, we'll take this to Thames. I think it would have turned out differently. Well, you do notice that in certain companies' productions, for example, the lighting is sometimes stronger and more harsh, or how audible the audience is, for example. Just little details like that can make a big, big difference when it comes to the overall feel of a show. And especially if you've got a company which isn't particularly associated with sitcoms. You know, you get occasions where I mean, we, we talked before, of course, about Take a Letter of Mr. Jones and that Beryl Marston, both coming from Southern, who didn't really have any pedigree in sitcoms at all. And those definitely look like London Weekend shows, though. Well, yeah, you've got an ex-LWT man in Brian Ezzard at the helm, but still you've got little traits about them in terms of fuzziness of the picture and the lighting and so on, which is something which would be unique to that company. Whereas, for example, I mean, the one thing that puts me off a lot of BBC shows from the late 80s and early 90s is that so many of them look so drab. I noticed this when drama was rerunning Brushstrokes just recently, is that quite often in a lot of BBC shows from that particular period of time, there's almost no colour in the screen at all. It's very plain in comparison to a big old rumbustious ITV sitcom from the same time period. And I mean, let's look at different Eric Chappell shows. Because Rising Damp is held up as being a cut above your standard thing. I don't know much about The Bounder. The Bounder, I saw that on Carlton Select around about sort of 15, 16 years ago. And it was a bit of an oddity. I mean, it was, it was a good, good little show, but I felt that George Cole was... I don't know, not so much that he was going to waste, but he was playing a role that was pretty straight, whereas Peter Bowles was the character who was getting to most of the, the comedic action. And yeah, it definitely works. It's a good little show, but it's not one that particularly sticks in my mind. I, I, I think after a while you sort of think, why does George Cole put up with Peter Bowles so much? And of course, this all relations and family reasons that get in the way but yeah it, it, was, it was a good little show for what it was but I don't really remember it being particularly outstanding. Now you, you've recently seen Hagrid haven't you? I'm coming to that. Yeah only when I laugh is broad things change as the plot requires. I was watched one last night and Figgis is suddenly interested in astrology and is covered in different talismans to protect him. Figgis does not strike me as somebody who'd have any truck with astrology. Well, he does because. Because reasons. <laughs> and you've got Christopher Strawley being kind of another Burke. Again, like I said, not a mummy's boy, just a bit green. I think Tyler Butterworth as Burke, or whatever his equivalent's called in Fiddler's Three, that comes across more. He's not quite so panicky and childlike. He's not a child man. He's just maybe been promoted a bit too soon. Yes. Can't imagine Burke, if he's left with the keys to Mr. Fletcher's house, Suddenly, then immediately saying to Carol, you know, do you want to come round tonight? Well, hey, I've got the keys to uh, the kingdom, you know, the gold swimming pool. I mean, whereas, yeah, Tyler Butterworth's character has no qualms about going straight for the secretary and saying, you know, I've got this opportunity, I'm going to try and exploit it. Duty free, broad farce. Home to Roost, what do you think of Home to Roost? I've watched some recently, 
It's neither particularly frothy. It serves its purpose. I don't know. I can't. There's something about Home to Roost that just doesn't draw me into it massively. And Actually, I this can... is something I did not mention about the squirrels. The reverse Spets effect. <laughs> As it's known. <laughs> <laughs> yes, professionally. <laughs> Academic circles. Good. Yes, definitely. Because one of the reasons I said I was so warm to Spets is just because I liked the burger bar. It's pink walls and it's funny little lights. And I don't like the office at International Rentals. It's cramped. It's not a nice place to be. And I think with Home to Roost, if their living room was nicer, I'd like the show more. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's, okay, again, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about the studio audience in Home to Roost. I know it's a live audience, and yet it feels strangely sort of distant. It feels ever so slightly sort of removed from the action. I, I really can't express this properly, but there's, there's just something about it. Yeah, there's something about Home to Roost... I agree with you about the, the set, and you've got those odd transitions between scenes, you know, with like the sort of quantile effect, you know, sort of moving from shot to shot. The Christmas special's horrible. Oh my god. Yeah, I, I don't have any wish to... But generally, it's not, it's not too frothy. You've got the whole thing about Henry's hypocrisy. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, Which I, I think wouldn't bites say... a little bit deeper than the average sitcom hypocrisy. Oh yeah. You do have an episode where abortion is talked about. It's the 80s. I wouldn't consider Home to Roost frothy at all. Singles, originally with Roger Rees, and then later Simon Cadell. I think it was also Judy Lowe and Susie Blake, I think. And Haggard, which we'll have to do properly. Haggard's interesting. It is broadfast, but it's it's broadfast in period, and it's done with a certain amount of the style of 18th century drama. There's breaking the fourth wall. There are stock plots, but we're supposed to kind of recognise them as stock plots of, if not what 18th century theatre was like, what we imagine it was. Haggard's interesting because the obvious thing, I imagine it probably gets compared with Blackadder when it gets mentioned. Possibly the existence of Blackadder made it easier to commission. But no, it's, it's a broad 18th century style comedy, televised. There is no idea really i mean you do get occasionally the servant grunge doing silly predictions about one day people will be able to watch in their heart that kind of thing but there isn't meant to really be a clash of a certain 20th century cynicism in characters reacting to 18th century events would you say it's it's fair about blackadder that historical events are reacted to the way somebody quite worldly from the 1980s would react, and that's part of the humour. Yes. It's a bit oversimplifying, but there's none of that. These are 18th century characters reacting in 18th century ways to 18th century situations. So there isn't really an Eric Chapel house style. That's my point. Just generally, it's made by Yorkshire Television, usually. But of course, you have got instances there, Judy Free and Singles, where Eric Chapel is the co-writer. And we've also got to remember as well that a lot of these episodes of The Squirrels that we saw weren't actually written by Eric Oh, Chappell. well. Remember I had a suggestion for a different Harry? Yes. Kenneth Cope. Indeed. I think he would, especially if he brought a little bit more of his scouseness. And Kenneth Cope wrote some episodes of The Squirrels. I mean, he wrote some episodes of The Dustbin Men as well. It might be, it might be worth our time actually just picking some Kenneth Cope things and watching them to see what he's like as a writer because we know him so well as an actor. So today's topic, The Squirrels, was chosen by listener Carl Lawson and he also chose the topic for next week's show, in which we will be discussing a program that was so, so outrageous, so perverted, one might say, that it was actually moved to a later slot in the After schedules. two shows. Oh, yes. And we're not talking about Hardwick House. We are talking about everyone's favourite hello, apart from Alan Rothwell, Leslie Phillips in Casanova 73. In the meantime, if you've already submitted a listener request within the last year and a half, then don't worry because we'll be coming to it within the next few weeks. Except for watching. more lined up. Hey, Watching needs more time. How much time is there for watching? There's 56 episodes now. How long is it going to take us to get through 56 episodes? Either that or we need a helping hand from somebody who can select key episodes we can watch without telling us what happens in them. Don't say, oh, right, well, you'll want to watch the one where... No specifics. If just, anybody just, just can get us a nice yeah. viewing list for watching, otherwise, we'll get through all 56, but it's, gonna, it's just going to take us a longer time. 
I'm not guaranteeing that because I, I did actually find the episode of one not heavy going but turgid. I think it would be the worst. It ran for seven series, so I'm going to say it changed. And I, I did watch it a bit at the time. I don't think I would have stuck with it if I hadn't had some interest, if I hadn't eventually warmed to the characters. So I don't want it to change at all. I just want it to be Emma Ray and Lisa Tarbuck sat in the pub moaning about the other customers and occasionally Paul Bowen comes in and has a golden space invaders machine. And that should be it. That should be the setup for 56 episodes. It episode. should be a webcam. A webcam <laughs> into the 80s. <laughs> so, next week, Castnode 73. In the meantime, if you've got any suggestions for shows that you'd like us to Don't. talk about, and I apologise for the fact that, that no, I, let us get I'm through really... the ones we have before you suggest any more. No, no, no. But we can, we can put, we can put them on the back of burner, so they say. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at the Sitcom Club on Twitter. Email us feedback at the Sitcom Club dot com which no one has ever done. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just look for The Sitcom Club. Find us on there. And you can also get hold of all the previous episodes. It's about 45 or so altogether now. You can get hold of all of them at sitcomclub.com and you can subscribe to the podcast on there using iTunes or your preferred podcatcher using the XML feed. In the meantime, Ocho. Goodbye. This is Hey Ho Moon Can't Co saying thanks very much for listening to The Sitcom Club. <laughs>